Thank you for listening to the Wealth Amplifier podcast. As a reminder, the goal of this podcast is to amplify a person, topic, or idea. On some episodes, members of the Amplius team will discuss a topic or idea. And on other episodes, we will invite an outside guest that has some particular insights or expertise. We really hope you enjoy the show. And like always with Amplius, if you have suggestions as to how we can make things better, please let us know. As a reminder, nothing on this episode should be taken as legal, tax, or investment advice. Tax, legal, and investment advice topics should be discussed one-on-one with the appropriate advisor. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Wealth Amplifier podcast. As a reminder for our new listeners, the goal of this podcast is to amplify an idea, a topic, or in this case with today's episode, a person who has many ideas and topics uh, that he'd like to discuss. We are honored today to be joined by Ron Insana. Ron, welcome to the Wealth Amplifier podcast. Thanks, Matt. Pleasure to be here. So, Many of our uh, many of our listeners, I'm sure, recognize the voice and the face. But rather than me, I don't want to not do it justice. So please share your very interesting career journey with us, way back from the FNN days to uh, money management to your current role uh, with Dynasty. Yeah, like this is uh, the the vertical, if you will, in the modern parlance that I'm in was was really quite an accidental experience. When I graduated college uh, in, in Southern California not at Southern California, but California State University, Northridge, which, by the way, when I started was $90 a semester and three sixty dollars when I graduated. So I didn't even spend $3,000 on Are you college. saying it's not that anymore? It's $17,000 a year now, which is Yeah, still, that sounds about right. Yeah, But, you know, I'll tell you, having, having gone there, it, it is still one of the best bargains on the planet if you happen to live in California. Um, but like I graduated there with a film degree in June of 1980 or May of 1984, couldn't find any work in the entertainment side of the business. And a friend of mine from high school was working at Financial News Network, which as everyone I think knows is the predecessor to CNBC. And so I got an entry level position there in June of 1984 as a production assistant. So I was ripping wire back when those were coming over the, the rolls on paper and tearing scripts when we actually had carbon copies, you know, six deep uh, that we pass out to anchors, directors and, and so on and so forth. And I was there for about four months and FNN, was spending a million dollars a month on its on its newsroom and, and taking in a half million. And I was one of the last people hired. So four months into my experience, my executive producer comes up to me and says, remember what I told you I needed you next week? I don't need you next week. So he fired me on the spot. And then a week later, they let go of 95% of the editorial staff and cut back to like break even overnight. But they kept Bill Griffith and Sue Herrera and my buddy from high school. So I went back to the vitamin store where I worked in college for four months looking for entertainment work, didn't come around. My friend called me in February of 85, said, you want my job as a producer, which paid at the time $22,500 a year. I said, absolutely. Went back. Bill Griffith and Sue Herrera had been ad-libbing eight hours of live business television a day since I had left. They did that for another three months, called in sick on the same day, put myself on the air (laughs) for a couple of updates in May of 1985. (laughs) September of 85, I was a full-time anchor with uh, another young lady that they had hired. And so... Then it just, you know, then it was just, you know, kind of like 40 more years or 39 more years. It'll be 40 years that I graduated college in, in, in May. And it just, you know, it just built upon itself. FNN became more and more credible over time. We merged with CNBC in 91. We had that explosive growth from 97 to 2000. 
um, with the internet, with the mutual fund mania, with all of that stuff going on, the Asian crisis, the Russian debt crisis, long-term capital. And, you know, from there, it's just, it's just been a, it's been a crazy run. And I went on to, as, as I think some people know, manage a fund of funds in the hedge fund space, worked for Steve Cohen for a period of time. And more recently, um, after spending four and a half years with Schroeder's, uh, joined uh, Dynasty as, as market's chief market strategist. That's great. That's great. I, um, I, I will say I actually saw you on FNN, so I feel like I've I've been on the full round and sauna journey. Though now, yeah, it's, uh, getting to a lot more hair, different glasses. Uh, <laughs> uh, at the time, much less expensive clothing. One of my bosses came on, and FNN by the by the way was in Southern California back then, and so um, the dress code in, in LA was a little different than the dress code in New York, which was very Brooks Brothers in the nineteen eighties, right. and I had these various kind of speckled jackets and so on and so forth. And at one point, my boss, my big boss called me up. He goes, can you just get a blue blazer? I said, can you pay me more? So I go out and buy clothing. But, <laughs> you know. Seems like a fair trade. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when did FNM become CNBC or when, when did you move? So to in, in May of 1991. So what, what happened, we went through, as, as some people may remember this, Financial News Network um, ran into some serious snags because our CEO at the time engaged in financial improprieties. and. Uh, got a lot of money, $72 million through Toronto Dominion and Security Pacific Banks, which he borrowed against phony inventory that didn't exist. Um, yeah, so the auditors kind of figured that out after a while. So in September of 90, started our problems. December of 90, we were going into bankruptcy. And by May of 1991, in a bidding war between Dow Jones and uh, General Electric, NBC, CNBC, uh, the, the latter one won us in bankruptcy court. And we closed FNN on Tuesday, May 21st, I believe. And we were on the air Wednesday morning, May 22nd, moving Bill Griffith and I in particular took a flight, two separate flights actually, uh, to Fort Lee, New Jersey from LA, California. And we were, we were off the air one night and on the air first thing the next morning, 3,000 miles from home. And it's that... At that point, is that when you moved to the East Coast? And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd grown up for 13 years in Buffalo, New York. Uh, oh, right, right. And my family moved to L.A. when I was about 13 in 1974. And then in 91, when we merged, yeah, we kind of, I had seen Fort Lee once. Um, I, I stopped by when I was on the East Coast working for FN to visit Sue Herrera, who had joined CNBC when it first began. And I saw Fort Lee, New Jersey, and I was like, I will never, ever, ever move to New Jersey. And two years later, I was on a plane, you know, and the next morning, like I said, uh, May 22nd, 1991, I, I was on the air for three hours a day with Ted David, uh, kind of sight unseen, except for that one very brief stopover that I made while I was on the East Coast. And uh, and you're still sitting in New Jersey today? I am. It's been 30, it'll be, what, geez, um, 30, 33 years in in, uh, in May. Met my wife at CNBC, have three kids. You got all my appliances, my insurance <laughs> right? from General Electric. So it was all one-stop shopping once I got here, you know. Oh, right. GE. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Of course. And then, um, so we're going to get to your time at Dynasty. And I certainly want to hear your thoughts on the markets and the Fed and the economy. But before we dive into that, um, if you would share a couple of your favorite stories from the CNBC days. I know you interviewed business leaders, world leaders, uh, anything that comes to mind. Yeah, well, it's funny. The, the first thing that happened that was, you know, I think really of note um, for me personally, anyway, 
I, we were, I was on the air with Joe Kernan and we used to have a segment called Stocks to Watch at the, the last you know 10 minute slug of, of each hour. And Joe would do that segment. And so I was doing, I think the 10 o'clock show at the time, 10 a.m. show. And so we get to the, the end of the show, Stocks to Watch comes up, Berkshire Hathaway has its earnings. And so we start talking about Berkshire Hathaway. We start talking about our favorite Berkshire companies. And having spent a lot of time in California, Warren Buffett had purchased Seize Candies, which was founded in California, but really unavailable anywhere else in the country. And so I was saying that Seeds was my favorite uh, company within Berkshire. And Joe had said that it was NetJets for him. So less than 24 hours later, I get to my desk and there are these two huge boxes just sitting there when I walked in in the morning. And so I open them up and there's 10 pounds of Seeds candy. And I open the note and it says, thanks for the mention, Warren. And I'd never spoken to him before. I, you know, we knew who he was. I guess he knew who I was. Um, so I called him up and I was like, hey, thanks for the candy. That's really nice of you. And he's... Um, He's like, you're going to share that with the rest of this crew, right? I said, absolutely not. I said, I live in New Jersey. I can't get this anywhere. I said, I'll leave a pound here, but I'm taking nine pounds home. And he said, uh, tell Kernan he's not getting a jet. <laughs> so it was like one of the first experiences I had, you know, with someone of that ilk at that time. Now, having said that, when I was at FNN, I, I did interview Bill Gates um, the month after the stock market crash in 1987. Um, and in October of 87, and given how much Microsoft's worth today, this is going to sound very quaint. But in October of 87, Microsoft had passed um, a few billion dollars in, in market value. And Bill Gates himself had become a billionaire. And in the space of a day, he lost a third of his net worth. And so we were at what used to be called the Comdex show in Las Vegas. And we sat down for an interview and we were talking about you know tech as it was evolving at the time. And I said, listen, I don't usually ask questions about anybody's you know kind of personal financial condition. I said, but you had just become a billionaire. And in the space of you know one day, you lost about a third of your net worth. I said, what went through your head? And he said, well, I was, you know, I was working. Everything was fine. Somebody walked into my office and said, the stock market's down. And I said, okay, and went back to work. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's a bit of a mind blower, you know? I mean, it was right, like, right, yeah, right. you lost 300 and some odd Right, a few hundred million. And he says, okay. Yeah, yeah he says, and, okay. And so you've... Um... And I, I imagine you've spoken to Buffett again over the years after that. Yeah, I, Warren and I have gotten to know each other reasonably well over time. We sat down in, in 04 um, for an interview in, in Nebraska, and we'd had some other conversations and done some kind of long distance things uh, together, uh, a couple things as a lark. Uh, and, and he's, you know, he's he's a, he's a really interesting guy, and, he, and he's pretty straight, which was what was interesting when we went out to Nebraska to interview him. I mean, he came across the street to the hotel, no bodyguards, no nothing. You know, we sat there and shot the breeze for a while. And then afterwards, he started asking me questions about the economy and what was going on at CNBC and, you know, how I saw things, which was when you put that in the totality of other people that I've interviewed, like Clinton, like Bush, like Hillary Clinton, like other, you know, heads of state or business people who I found to be really interesting, they all shared a common trait. They had this insatiable level of curiosity. So if, if we said, and this was true of Carlos Gutierrez, who was Commerce Secretary under Bush. Uh, Bob Rubin, um, Greenspan, even to a certain extent. I spent a lot of time going to the Fed from 96 till I left CNBC full time in 2006. It was great give and take. And, and everybody was always looking for an additional piece of information. So it wasn't me just always asking questions. Once the cameras went off, like you started this dialogue and like, what are you hearing? What are you seeing? You know, it, it, is, is this happening or, you know, what, what are your contacts saying to you? So I always found that really interesting that the best people that I felt I was speaking to were the ones who were most interactive. And most interested and curious uh, on their own right. Yeah. And it could be about anything too. Like we, you know, I remember 
I was interviewing Hillary Clinton when she was a senator from New York right after 9-11 because they moved the World Economic Forum to Manhattan uh, from Davos. Oh, I didn't even realize that in, the, in 01 in, they did that. In January of 02. And so we sat down uh, with Hillary at the hotel and, and had a conversation. When we were, done, we were talking about our kids, we were talking about religion, we were talking about books to read. Um, and I, I found that, and, and it was true with a lot of people, but I mean, it was, it was interesting with her because no one really ever accessed her in a way that made her a real person. And, and, and that was one of her biggest problems, I think, is, as a presidential candidate was that on TV, um, the camera didn't love her. Um, but when you sat down and just talked to her and one-on-one, and -on -one, it's really a fascinating conversation. I remember talking to George Will about this when we were both doing a, 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 an event somewhere. And he's like, yeah, he goes, if, if you could count on, on more than one hand, the number of times somebody, someone said, if you could just meet this person in person, you'd feel differently about them than you see them on the campaign trail or on TV. And he was right. I mean, it, it was, you know, there are a host of people who are, challenged on camera, which includes now our current president. Um, you know, everything that I hear about him is that he's not bumbling, that he's not forgetful, that he's actually quite sharp in a very difficult brief uh, from two cabinet members that I know. And Paul Krugman just wrote about an off the record. He alluded to an off the record conversation he had with Biden in which there was a big drill down on economic numbers. And I've heard that before. And so you get these different narratives and you get yeah. different perspectives on people that may or may not be accurate if you only see them on TV, myself included, I would imagine. <laughs> Fair enough. And I do I, I do have some political questions a little, a little bit later, but let's shift to the markets for a minute yeah. here. Before we dive in though, why don't you share what you're doing at Dynasty now and how you came to uh, be at Dynasty Financial Partners? And then uh, just real quick before, and for those of the listeners, most of our listeners know who Dynasty is, but, uh, but just as a backdrop, uh, Dynasty Financial Partners is the firm that helped our firm really create ourselves, uh, you know, from and, and they've done that for about 50 to 60 other firms around the country and then serve as our middle and back office and really everything consultant. Uh, so uh, how did you get involved in the Dynasty Network? So I've known Cheryl and, and Todd Thompson since they started the firm. And we've talked about different things over the years. And, and in the summertime, he asked me if I would you know contemplate coming on board in this particular role as chief market strategist. And I, and I, I was free to do it at the time. And so I said, yes. And so part of that is being on the investment committee and working with Bob Shea on the way in which we, you know, design model portfolios and, you know, the TAMP and all the other types of um, vehicles that are accessible to, to the uh, platform partners, network partners. Um, and so that's, it was really, you know, in a certain sense, it was kind of out of the blue. And, and I know, you know, Cheryl was looking for somebody to fill that role. We've talked about doing things together over the course of many years and it, it popped up. So, um, and I've spent time, as you know, like kind of out in the field as well with some of the, the firms that are on the platform, either talking to the firms themselves or prospective clients and the like. And, and so had a great deal of interactivity uh, engaged in the forum that we had in, in uh, Nashville in November. Right. That's where we first met. That was Indeed. a great, great event. Yeah. It, was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, really interesting points of view. And so and, and that, you know, involves also interacting with some other people who have, you know, thoughts on the marketplace and, and either interviewing them or, you know, in some way distilling that down and sharing it with folks who are interested in hearing, you know, a wide variety of opinions. So perfect segue. Let's hear your opinion. So uh, just today we have uh, some pretty ugly numbers in the uh, in the bond and stock markets. What, where do you think we are in the economy and markets right now? I mean, the economy's fine. You know, I mean, there's, there's really it's hard to say there's much wrong with it. You know, we're now 26 months with the unemployment rate under four percent, which has not happened since the mid 1960s. 
Um, inflation, today's data notwithstanding, I think is still coming down. Um, you had some quirks in the in, in the data. You, you saw that you know owner's equivalent rent, which is a proxy for shelter costs, was up 0.6%. Car insurance, different health insurance, those numbers were up a lot. There might have been some seasonal adjustment factors that pushed the number a little higher than expected at 0.3%. Core was obviously uh, much higher than anticipated. I, th- I think I'm thinking for the moment that this is a blip. And I think, you know, look, we're, we're bound to see a backup in yields, given that, you know, just at the end of last year, we, we or in the fall of last year, we crossed 5%, dropped all the way down to 380. And, and so now we've shot back to 430 and change. And the same with the stock market. I mean, we've had a, an incredible rip since November. And so we're down on average about 2% today or close to 2%. I, I don't think that's unexpected. We just hit a record yesterday in the Dow. We hit a record in the S&P the day before, and the Nasdaq's within striking distance of that level, at least it was before today. Um, so these types of things, you know, when I look at markets and try to, you know, when you're trying to figure out the the bull bear equation, um, you know, I think it, it behooves people to remember that, that corrections are short, sharp, and scary. Um, just like, you know, bull market moves in a bear market are short, sharp, and alluring. So, I think for now, um, you know, there's there's a modest correction underway that's probably more than overdue, given that we've seen the Magnificent Seven account for a great share of this this run. Um, they're gonna they'll have a disproportionate influence on downside activity if they sell off, and so you know I think people should probably strap themselves in for a couple of weeks. Volatility got really low; we got down to twelve on the VIX, um, and so you know every once in a while. You have to look for something like this to happen to shake the shake the tree a little bit. Um, fundamentally, I still think 2024 from an economic and market perspective is going to be an abnormally normal year, politics and geopolitics notwithstanding. I feel like we are to to use the term you used before overdue for an abnormally normal year. So yeah, I mean, look at what we've gone through, you know, since yeah. 2020 and 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 even before, really. I mean, when just the the last, I would say, you know, seven eight years. We, we've gone through things that we, you know, and experienced things both economically and politically that we've not experienced before. And now we've also had an eruption geopolitically in the last three or four years that wasn't anticipated. And and again, you and I, I don't know if we're the same age, I'm be 63 and, and I doubt you're as old as I am, but I'd be 63 in March. And what was interesting about the 90s, you know, through recently is that we got away with a lot, right? I mean, it was you know, for all the, you know, kind of events that took place and some of the market corrections and even the great financial crisis, for all of that that took place, if you're my age, you've gone through your entire adult life without really being challenged, which is highly unusual. And so if we have a slightly more challenging political and geopolitical period ahead of us, I wouldn't be surprised. Having said that, even during periods of of tumult in the past, You've had normal economic years and normal market years within that. And that's that's kind of where I see, in a certain sense, the U.S. economy being somewhat isolated and relatively strong. And we've got data to back that up, right? We're growing faster with less inflation than the G7 countries. China's imploding. You know, Japan's doing okay. But we're kind of, you know, a fairly stable island in a, in a sea of turbulence. And so I started my career right as sort of the tail end of the dot-com bubble inflating and then and then it collapsed yeah. and uh, uh and I've heard you speak on this but for the uh for the audience you do not view what's going on with the quote magnificent 7 as a bubble at this point uh, not yet. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, bubbles are big things, right? I mean, if you go back and the bubble that that, that kind of really occurred around internet stocks kind of started in 95, you know, Netscape came public, we saw AOL, we saw some of those early, you know, internet service providers, Yahoo and others, Lycos, um, start to come public and, 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 you know, gain attention. And then we saw all the add-ons, you know, the, the pets.com of the world and, and the web vans and everybody that was trying to turn, you know, the internet into a, a hub of commerce, which, you know, at the time, many of us thought was kind of crazy. We didn't see the full potential of what might transpire. Um, you know, Amazon ultimately came on, and and valuations not only got extreme, they were immeasurable. You know, I think the Nasdaq sold at least a hundred times earnings, right? And we and we did see you know the big mega cap stocks like Cisco, Microsoft, General Electric, Intel, Intel, right? Six hundred yeah. six hundred fifty billion in market cap, which at the time was extraordinary, right? And the, there were there was one other I think that approached that level. But you also had, you know, you were littered with thousands of IPOs over the course of five years, companies that didn't have products that were raising money to develop products, but they wanted the money for advertising products they had yet to create. Some companies had no revenues, certainly had no profits. I think 70% of the companies that went public in 1999, and there were somewhere between 700 and 1,000, I don't remember the exact number, did not have profits. So, and you know, you remember going down the street, and I don't know, I don't know if you have a distinct recollection of this, but this was such cocktail party conversation where everybody and his brother, mother, even there's an anecdote that I shared in one of my books about a homeless person asking a friend of mine who worked at New York Stock Exchange for a, for an internet stock tip on December twenty third, nineteen ninety nine. You kind of knew the the top the was near. marginal buyer yeah. was in, right? You know, right, right. right. So, yeah, I mean, in, in a certain sense, this is more. I mean. It's not quite like the nifty 50. When you look at these big companies, they have extraordinary cash piles. They're still growing really fast. I would say if it's going to be a bubble, it's going to take another three to five years to really inflate if it's going to mirror what happened in the 1990s. And you're going to see some crazy companies come out that have absolutely nothing to do with artificial intelligence. And they're going to link their name to AI, just like we saw with KTEL. Which sold, you know, horrible seventies music over the over TV commercials at night. The, but they, they were ktel dot com, and the the stock ripped. Zapata oh. Corporation was a fish meal and bone meal company. Did the it regulators was, ever go after anybody for doing that, or is it too hard? Uh, to Globe dot com was the one that really got regulators' attention. It came public. I think it was up six hundred and forty percent on its first day, and every retail investor who had a Schwab account bought it and top ticked it, and then sued. Um, so, and that was kind of, that, that's when we were closing in on the end of the, the cycle. Right, right. So um, we, we haven't seen that kind of stuff yet, you know? Well, and the so-called Magnificent Seven are, for the most part, companies that have been around for quite a while now and are making a ton of money. I yeah, mean, Microsoft for years was left for debt, right? I mean, right. And, and now they're doing fine. Amazon, which is also integral to, to AI, has AWS, you know, Amazon Web Services. So all these cloud computing companies that are involved, IBM, you know, recently hit an 11-year high because they have Watson X. So they're, you know, at least they may not be in the forefront, but they're certainly looked at um, at this point as, as a company that's getting in that space. Google, um, NVIDIA, obviously, all those meta, uh, all those companies. Uh, the difference between then and now is, that, again, Apple also included, you know, Apple, I think, is sitting on $160 billion in cash. You know, Microsoft has a hundred billion in cash. They all have somewhere between sixty and one hundred and sixty billion dollars in cash on their balance sheets, and they're still growing twenty, thirty, forty percent 
a year and they're selling at 30 or 40 times earnings. It's hard to say that that's like, you know, a company selling at 100 times earnings that doesn't have any growth. So it's, that, it's different. And that said, most of the returns, or, or let's say a good chunk of the returns in the markets have been concentrated up there. Yeah. When do you think we'll start to see broader participation? Well, up and through today, you started to see you it. started to. Yeah. Right? I mean, you were getting a one and three quarter percent gain yesterday, one and a half percent gain the day before that. Um, and, and, and people are starting to gravitate towards small cap growth more than small cap value. Right. So that, that's what's that's where the rotation's been. The unweighted S&P, you are starting to see some of the smaller components of the S&P or, or less richly valued components of the S&P start to rally a bit. Um, and that apparently is a bit of a little end stage move, at least as far as this run is concerned. Um, but look, for, for, for the market to be truly healthy, it would have to broaden out rather considerably and, you know, take in some of the other stocks that have been left behind. You know, there, there's some trouble spots there. Banks are down a lot, particularly with rates popping today. The regional banking index is getting pounded. Yep. Um, and there are concerns about, as we've discussed in other conversations, you know, commercial real estate, uh, banking in general, um, smaller and mid-sized banks in particular, uh, carrying too much commercial real estate exposure, whether it's the likes of a New York community bank or a bank in Tokyo that has too much U.S. commercial real estate exposure. The, the, there's some dinging going on around there that but someone's you know, left holding the bag and... Yeah. yeah, there always is, right? And the big and the big banks are selling these synthetic risk derivatives. So they're selling the hedge funds and, and, and other alternative investors. Somebody's going to hold it back, right? At the end of the day, if commercial real estate does go bad in, in size and there's something like a trillion two in debt that needs to be refinanced, $270 billion of that sits on the balance sheets of small and medium-sized banks, there'll be an event out there at some point, right? In my mind, that'll be one of the events that hastens the Fed's pivot towards lower interest rates. Just not yet. Just not. Yeah. And so it sounds like putting it all together, fair to say you're modestly bullish and optimistic right now. There are negative things out there, but on the, on the aggregate, you're, you're leaning towards the positive. Look, I think, you know, in the absence of China attacking Taiwan or Russia overrunning Ukraine or or what's going on in the Middle East, expanding into a regional crisis that involves the U.S. and Iran, directly squaring off and then having the price of oil explode, um, which by the way, it has not been attempting to do, right? We're, maybe we're at 77 bucks on oil. I don't know if you saw natural gas futures. We're sitting here in the middle of a north, nor'easter, just had eight to 10 inches dumped on my house and natural gas futures are at $1.66. You know, two years ago, they were at $9, right? Heating oil is one of the weakest spots on the futures chart today. So I mean, if, if people were truly freaked that the Middle East was going to explode into a chaotic event, you'd see oil ripping to the upside. And we peaked out at $92 a barrel sometime last year, and we, we've come down considerably since then. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I have those worries. I keep them in the back of my mind, but I just think that the U.S. looks okay. The Atlanta Fed GDP now forecast is 3.4% for the first quarter, um, which is stronger than the fourth quarter. So, yeah, so you have strong economic growth, hopefully continually declining inflation, and maybe a Fed that starts uh, at least moving to neutral uh, yeah. uh, off their. Uh... And that's and it's a fourth year of a presidential cycle, which historically is the second best year for equities in that four year period. The third year being the best, which we just saw. With we a, just saw last year, right. Total right. return on the S&P of what, 26 percent? 
Yeah, and when, so perfect uh, segue. Speaking of chaotic, yes. uh, there is nothing normal, at least in my opinion, about the election we're about to have. Um, Not even close. From a market participant standpoint, how much should the uh, average client care? Uh, and, and then just from the societal observer standpoint, what do you think about the state of things there? So when I was born on March 31st, 1961, the Dow was at something like 660. Two years later, John F. Kennedy gets shot. Later, we're in Vietnam full force. Then we have the great inflation of the 1970s. Then we have a whole host of other events that take place. You know, in, in my nearly 63 years, there have been a lot of political. You've events. seen some stuff, yeah. And and you know, we've gone from 660 to 38,000. So it, it's hard to get too wrapped up in this from a market perspective, other than to say, I think more than 2024, which again, is going to be unique in our history of an 81-year-old incumbent versus a 77-year-old former president, four times indicted. You know, we don't know whether they're going to try to impeach President Biden in the House for something or other. Um, and you have everybody complaining that you have two people that you don't want to run running for president. And half the country will be upset no matter who wins. Uh, highly unusual. Will it affect the markets this year? No, I think you know, there's the risk of a, of a, of a government shutdown next month if, if, if the Congress doesn't get its act together. The, the Ukraine-Israel-Taiwan uh, uh, bill with, with the border package included failed to, to pass. Disturbing uh, that they can't get that type of stuff done. But as we know in our business, grid, gridlock, you know, just makes it easier to, to forge ahead. Next year, I think it's going to be a different story. Next year, the Trump tax cuts expire. Next year, the salt cap gets lifted back to where it was prior to 2017. Um, so they're either going to extend the tax cut and then marginally lift uh, the amount of money you could deduct for state and local income taxes and so on and so forth. Or it's going to get unwound altogether, in which case I think that's, you know, if, if President Biden were to win re-election and not extend those tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts in particular, you'd have you'd have some tough sledding while people are contemplating that. Um, but I think... 25 from a market perspective might be a more consequential year than 24. Interesting. If Trump comes in, he's talking about 60% tariffs on Chinese goods and 10% tariffs on every import that comes into the country. So that in and of itself is also another potentially disruptive force. I wonder if he would extend his own tax cuts. I mean, if, if Congress agreed, if he would. Well, want to. that's the other question is what's the composition of Congress, right? So we're, we've got a special election here in New York today for George Santos's seat. Tom Suozzi, the Democrat, presumably is, is leading, but we're also being disrupted by this storm. So if, if Suozzi were to win, that would narrow the Republican margin even further in the House. Um, and then when again, when you get to the, the, the House and Senate um, elections that are obviously coincident with the presidential, my guess is that the House goes Democrat and the Senate goes Republican, by both by the narrowest of margins. So no matter who wins the presidency, it's still an uphill battle on the legislative front, no matter sure. how you cut it. Yeah. No, it seems like the days of, what was that? I guess Obama in 09 had uh, 60 senators briefly. Briefly. And, and even then, I mean, he, many of us, and, and I know President Clinton felt this way as well, in the, as the great financial crisis was still, you know, in, in, we were in the throes of it when Obama came in. We were all pressing for $2 trillion in, you know, um, fiscal stimulus and all he could get was 800 billion. And I say that all he could get was, but given the size of the calamity that we were going through and how brittle and, and, and you know, um, damaged the financial system was, 
lot of us felt that was the right number. And the fact that they never got to it kind of prolonged the agony, right? And this time around during COVID, we spent, you know, four or five times that amount and and got the result that we wanted really in a certain sense. You had inflation that lasted for a couple of years, but you also came out from a growth perspective far stronger than anybody had realized. And the fact that no other country did what we did, you know, left them in the dust, both from a growth perspective and also how as as we quickly, relatively quickly normalized the economy, inflation fell faster here than anywhere else. So, you know, they missed the opportunity then. They took it this time around. And I think, you know, the kind of proofs in the pudding, I wouldn't do it again, obviously. Right, right. That's not going back to zero. And we're not going to, you know, pass another $4 trillion worth of fiscal stimulus. But but there are things that need to be done. And with any luck at all, some sort of um, in, even enlightened self-interest among our elected officials might guide them one day again to do the right thing. It would be, I, I've said that before, that it would be nice at the very least if those in power did logical things that were in their own self-interest, uh, you know, it, it, sometimes it, that seems even too high a bar. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, you know, it's interesting to me for the package that passed in the Senate um, that included, a, you know, tough border restrictions and, and a real realignment, uh, almost almost comprehensive immigration reform to a certain degree, along with the aid for Ukraine, Israel, uh, aid for Palestinians and for Taiwan to not pass that because President Trump would rather run on it than solve the problem now. That's about as cynical as you can get. And, and, and they got everything basically that they wanted. And I'm not, I'm not just picking on the Republicans, but this is the most recent thing, right? No, I understood. understood. Um, and then now we've got the, you know, the Ukraine security package that also includes money for Israel and Taiwan. That went through the Senate, that passed, that's getting killed in the House, even though it's the right thing to do. We all know, you know unless you want Vladimir Putin in Poland, it's the right thing to do, you know, and and I, it's it's strange because in my experience and, you know, a lot of kind of the middle portion of my career, I was interviewing people like Bob Dole, Pete Domenici, you know, uh, Leon Panetta, you know, folks. Of, Pragmatists. Yeah. And, and, and on both sides of the aisle. No, and, they right, get together and, and they'd hash it out. You know, they didn't agree on everything, but they did manage to forge compromises. And that that really, I think, started to erode in the middle of the Clinton years. And, and and has been with us ever since that even George Bush couldn't pass comprehensive immigration reform in his own party. Obama couldn't pass it and and Trump never tried. So, you know, it, it's it's interesting. Catherine Rampell of The Washington Post wrote a fabulous piece this morning about the need for more people, which is based on a congressional budget office survey that would suggest that if immigration continued at its current pace, notwithstanding the the legitimate problems we have at the border, we would see $7 trillion over the next 10 years in additional GDP and a trillion dollars in additional revenues going to the government if, if, if we let people keep coming. I just was watching a speech this morning of Ronald Reagan on his that's way out. One. Yep. yep, yep, yep. Yeah, exactly. And that's the one she quoted in her piece, which- Oh, okay. Got it, got it. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's-, it's, it's <laughs> Given that our birth rate's fallen below the population replacement rate, the fact that we're arguing- that immigration is a scourge or an invasion rather than an assist to the economy. I mean, it's really simple math, right? And this is the way I, I approach it. I know that there are sensitivities in certain parts of the country because I go there and I talk to people in Texas and Arizona and other places, Florida, which treats itself as a border state when all it borders is the Gulf of Mexico. Um, you know, uh, people get very upset about this. But look, if you were just to back away from all this 
in all our history and historical experience, notwithstanding my family coming here in the early 1900s, my grandparents, you know, we've had many waves, right? If you want to just do the math, labor force growth plus productivity growth equals GDP growth. And if you don't have both, you can't grow above potential. So labor force growth is a, popula- is a, is a proxy for population growth. And we ain't got it. Now, we're not China. We're not Japan. We're not Italy. Right. But we're short. Right. So you need people. There are 435,000 open construction jobs. We're still short truckers. We're still short healthcare workers. We're still short teachers, you know. Right. So you uh, secure the border and have legal structured immigration. Yeah. And it would seem logical that everybody could win. But I guess that is uh, at the current time too much. As you know, people's heads explode when you get into this conversation. Right. I mean, and and I went so far a couple of weeks ago, I was giving a speech somewhere and I said, okay, so how many of your relatives came over on the Mayflower? Not that that's entirely legitimate, you know, way of migrating because they didn't exactly call up Native Americans and say, hey, we're coming, you know, open the welcome mat for us. Right. Um, and then I said, like, you know, how many people do X job right now? You know, your own lawn. How many of you work in construction? You know, clearly nobody does. And, and every wave of immigration that we have, and people can argue about this in a lot of ways, but most immigrants will take the jobs that assimilated peoples won't take and don't want their children to take, Right. You're trying to assimilate. You're moving up the ladder. You want your kids to go to college. You get high-paying jobs. And you know when when my people came, when Sicilians came to America, you know it's waste management, construction, and contracting. You know we did a few unsavory things as well. You know as we as as we've seen from recent television programs. Um, but every you know every group that's come has added something to the mix ultimately, and we've been richer for it. And so I think and these arguments, by the way, go back to the 1840s when the Irish started coming. So it's the same argument with every group. It, it just changes, you know, the, the face just changes. And then, so I think, you know, having kind of looked at the history of this and, and, and how what was written at different times over the course of the last hundred and, you know, 80 years or so, it's always the same argument. You know, they're, they're polluting the brand, if you will. They're, they're, they're diluting the purity. They're taking our jobs. None of that empirically has ever been proven to be true. So it's kind of a crazy argument to make, and yet we're making it. And yeah, what you say is you have to secure the border. You have to open more legal ports of entry. You need more judges to adjudicate asylum you know, requests and all that kind of stuff. And, and you need more money to, to temporarily house these folks. But right now it's a better political issue as a crisis than it is to actually deliver a solution. Well, maybe 2025 is the year. Whoever's in. Uh, Whoever, I, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so, look, this has been great. Thank you so much, Ron. Um, we always, the last question we always ask every uh, guest, given the name Ampliest Wealth Advisors and the Wealth Amplifier podcast, is if there is a cause, an issue uh, beyond immigration, uh, something that, that you would like to uh, amplify uh, uh, for our uh, listeners. Yeah. I mean, on a very, very personal note, um, you know, I, I think. Um, for women in particular, and, and my wife just went through this, having been in August diagnosed with stage one breast cancer. Um, early detection to me is one of the most important things I, I've, I've come to understand. And, and a friend of mine, Kristen Dahlgren, who just retired from NBC um, to take on um, kind of working towards a breast cancer vaccine, believe it or not. Oh, wow. um, I think like, I mean, while this is far afield from anything that we've discussed, you know, having had 
the experience with my wife over the course of the last now five and a half months where very early detection, very aggressive treatment. Turns out that she doesn't have some of the same risk factors as others. And so she's on like hormone suppression therapy after having gone through everything that she's gone through and she's fine, completely clean. Um, I think people should be looking into, you know, breast cancer awareness and, and those um, philanthropies that focus on that. And I think Kristen Dahlgren, if you, if you, um, if you Google her, there is, there's now a um, organization that she's involved with that's actually trying to raise, I think, in the neighborhood of a billion dollars for a breast cancer vaccine, which if it's underfunded, it'll take 50 years. If it's overfunded, it may take five, given the mRNA technologies that are being deployed that we discovered, you know, during the or, or found out about really during the pandemic, during yeah. the pandemic. And so I it's kind of a critical issue. Um, we were taken completely by surprise, obviously. And, you know, and it was just a piece of luck that it was caught quite early. But I think it's, I, you know, and it's true for like all kinds of cancers, you know, or any kind of illness that early detection and really paying attention to one's health um, is just as important, if not more important than paying attention to one's portfolio. That is a uh, great note to end on. And I'm, first of all, I'm very glad that your wife's doing okay. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, uh, great cause uh, to amplify. And thank you so much for joining us. This thank has been you, great. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. You got it.